great. Thanks, Deepak. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here today to uh, tell you a little bit about our work and uh, some of the efforts at the uh, University of Maryland with regard to the uh, Plavix and antiplatelet story. Um, I brought in some hecklers from the back who uh, <laughs> uh, have actually been very involved with this work. Uh, and uh, as I tell you about their work, I'll recognize them as we go. Uh, for us, uh, uh, pharmacogenomics is a pretty uh, new area. And um, uh, the reason that we got into antiplatelet therapy is a couple of fold. One is it was sort of a graduate from uh, an earlier study that we did on uh, just general studies of gene environment interactions. And uh, that'll be a talk for another day. But um, uh, we quickly realized that uh, uh, drugs were just another kind of gene environment interaction. And uh, before we knew it, uh, the pharmacogenomics arena took on an, a life of its own in, in terms of our research. Um, a lot of what I'll describe today is funded through the pharmacogenomics uh, research network. And um, while I would have never expected that I would be spending the better part of my day designing prospective randomized clinical trials and uh, dealing with um, regulatory science people and others around how do we actually implement uh, discoveries into the clinic, that's kind of how I've been spending the better part of my day uh, these days, um, despite the fact that um, we are very interested in um, um, the discovery end of uh, pharmacogenomics and genomic medicine more, more generally. So the story I'm going to tell you today is about clopidogrel and Plavix. And I'll move through the discovery part pretty quickly because all that's published and uh, I think probably general knowledge to this audience. Uh, but then I'll move into where we're going with, uh, with the discovery. Uh, so all of you know, uh, clopidogrel is very commonly used uh, typically as a dual antiplatelet agent with aspirin. And it's very effective in preventing heart attacks and stroke, but not in everybody. Uh, very widely used and sold drug, 2009, it was the third highest selling drug in the world. And uh, over $4 billion of it was sold in the US. Um, it's really interesting to kind of look at the history of uh, clopidogrel uh, in that when it was uh, approved by the FDA and used very broadly, its mechanism of antiplatelet action wasn't even known. And it's just been in the last several years through advances in pharmacology of uh, clopidogrel that it is now known that it actually binds to ADP receptors on platelets and in so doing prevents uh, that pathway, platelet aggregation, and, and ultimately preventing uh, thrombosis. So um, the reason that uh, an endocrinologist like myself is interested in platelets is, is that I've learned these little platelets are the coolest little circulating endocrine organs <laughs> you can imagine. They have receptors, they make ligands, and they have signal transduction pathways that are every bit uh, the same as uh, our endocrine system. And I've been having a lot of fun trying to figure some of this out um, since uh, platelets are actually accessible. You can actually study them in ex vivo in tubes and things. Uh, and that's a direction on the discovery side that we're moving. And one of the reasons I'm down here uh, to talk to Rima and her group and uh, collaborative effort in pharmacometabolomics is to try to understand on a broader basis uh, mechanisms. And um, as I've mentioned, uh, clopidogrel doesn't work in everyone. There's great inter-individual variability in response. And depending upon how you define it, uh, anywhere between 4% and a third of individuals um, can be considered uh, non-responsive. So um, with that background, now about uh, six years ago, we started the uh, PAPI-1 study, pharmacogenomics of antiplatelet intervention study. And um, 
for now, uh, hard to believe, almost 20 years, we've been doing a lot of our genomic medicine research in the old order Amish uh, that live in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. And we have a large research clinic up there and more than a dozen studies that are ongoing, some neat discoveries in the diabetes area, uh, lipids, uh, cardiovascular disease, again, topic for another day. But it provided us the infrastructure to uh, uh, conduct the PAPI-1 study in which over about three years, we recruited 668 healthy Amish uh, individuals, and uh, we treated them with clopidogrel for one week and measured platelet aggregation before and after. Uh, we also did uh, an aspirin intervention that I'll tell you about uh, in a little bit. And so what we were able to demonstrate is, uh, like others, but maybe on a wider scale and with fewer covariates, since these were drug-naive, healthy individuals, uh, you can see that uh, there's a range, a distribution of platelet aggregation at baseline, pre-clopridogrel, and that uh, on average, after clopridogrel, the population uh, responds to clopridogrel. There's a shift in the distribution to uh, less sticky platelets. But if you look at individuals within the population, we were very easily able to replicate the fact that there's huge inter-individual variation in response, with some individuals responding really well and other individuals starting in the same place but responding uh, hardly at all. And um, so the lesson here is the population responds to clopridogrel, but there's great uh, inter-individual variability. One of the really, uh, please. So does that still show that they, that they are? That's correct. This is all comers, healthy individuals, that we gave clopridogrel for a week and just measured pre and post. And so you see that there's sort of a, and, and this, is a, uh, this is the percent of the study, this is ADP-induced platelet aggregate. And so you can see that there's a shift. Uh, so yes, on average, the population responded. Um, one of the cool things about the Amish is, is that all uh, 30,000 in Lancaster County are related. And we know exactly how they're related uh, because they've kept extensive genealogies going back 14 uh, generations. And so all of these 668 individuals are a single 14-generation pedigree. And so in uh, we were able to esti actually estimate the heritability of drug response, and remarkably, about 70% of the variation in clopidogrel response can be explained by relatedness. And as all of you know, a lot, uh, uh, related people share a lot of things, but uh, uh, much of what they share are their genes. And in the case of a drug intervention in healthy individuals, um, we really can't imagine much of an environmental uh, 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 variable that would account for 70% of the variation. So it really does suggest uh, a genetic component. And that's what motivated our genome-wide association study. And this slide summarizes a huge amount of uh, effort by a large number of people uh, that I'll recognize uh, in my uh, latter slides. But uh, uh, 500K uh, uh, AFI uh, GWAS, uh, uh, typical Manhattan plot, you can see a, a, a very impressive peak on chromosome 10Q uh, with p-values that exceed uh, genome-wide significance. Uh, the genes in this region are very interesting. Actually, it's right within a cytochrome P450 cluster, CYP2C18, 2C19, C8, and C9. And uh, with a little bit of luck, uh, we actually uh, drilled down on this cluster. Uh, genotyped uh, a, a common loss of function variant in CYP2C19, the so-called STAR2 variant. Um, this is a known loss of function variant. And as it turns out, uh, pretty much all, but not 
all of it, but, but a large proportion of this signal uh, is explained by this STAR2 variant. So uh, you can see that in the absence of clopridogrel, the STAR2 variant has uh, nothing to do with ADP-induced platelet aggregation. In the presence of clopridogrel, you can see a, a very robust effect uh, with the gene dose effect, uh, heterozygotes having poorer response to uh, clopridogrel compared to homozygous normals and uh, those who are so-called poor metabolizers, homozygotes, having even a, a worse uh, response. And uh, uh, so the paradigm we use is to make initial discoveries in a very clean population, one that has uh, minimal confounding influences, and then we take that discovery out into, po and, then, and we use uh, surrogate endpoints that are also clean, like platelet aggregation in a test tube, and then we take that discovery out into the general population to then determine whether that particular variation has relevance to clinical outcomes. And so this part of the slide shows you a collaboration with uh, our uh, collaborators at Sinai Hospital in Baltimore, where Paul Goebel and colleagues uh, recruited uh, patients from the cath lab who uh, needed Plavix to prevent their recurrent stent uh, thromboses. And, uh, and, and recurrent uh, MIs. And you can see that uh, this STAR2 variant um, uh, predicts uh, poor response vis-a-vis -vis recurrent cardiovascular events uh, with about a two, two-and-a-half-fold increased risk in carriers. Uh, most of these individuals are the heterozygotes. There are a few poor metabolizers in here, but clearly it's the intermediate metabolizers that are carrying this increased hazard ratio. And just as you see a... Um, pure pharmacogenomic effect at the level of pharmacodynamics, uh, we also see a pretty pure pharmacogenomic effect at the level of cardiovascular outcomes. So uh, this, this hazard ratio seems to be contributed by patients who were taking clopridogrel at the time of the event. For whatever reason, patients who were not taking clopridogrel at the time of the event, the STAR2 variant has little or, or no effect. So um, a very cool story, really consistent story, and uh, as Deepak said, uh, we were not the first and we were not the only ones to make this discovery. Uh, we were the first and I still think the only genome-wide association study of clopridogrel response, so we were able to put a genome-wide context behind the finding. But there have been a number of candidate gene studies that have shown uh, similarly the effect of this STAR2 variant. The STAR2 variant is very common in diverse populations, a third, yes? Yeah, so, um, uh, whoops, sorry. So I think uh, if you uh, look at, uh, it's basically a Hardy-Weinberg question. So uh, the frequency is about, say, 0.2, a little frequency about 0.2 in the general population. So only about 4%, 3 to 4% of the population will be poor metabolizers. Oh, we can, we've done that before, and that's another talk I can give you that uh, we've identified a number of founder effect variants that have been very informative to biology. One of them published in Science a couple of years ago, a, a null mutation in APOC3 that's been really cool. Um, one out of eight Amish have familial defective APOB, this uh, codon 3500 variant that increases LDL cholesterol markedly. Uh, one in, less than one in a thousand in the general population have it, but in the Amish, one out of every eight have it, and it's a major cardiovascular risk factor in that population. We're actually beginning to implement now ApoB genetic testing uh, on a population-wide basis 
as part of our wellness program. And we have several other examples. That was my other talk. <laughs> and have you Please. sequenced the uh, 2C19 gene in the homage? Yeah, let me uh, show you a little bit of data. We're just getting through that now, at least at the exome level. Okay. I'll show you that. Great. Um, that's a work in progress. So a third to a half of the population carry at least one star two allele. Uh, this uh, uh, single uh, variant in three billion base pairs of the genome accounts for about 12% of the variation in platelet response at the level of platelet aggregation, clopidogrel response at the level of platelet aggregation, and about a two, two and a half fold risk of um, recurrent cardiovascular events. And again, uh, when uh, clopidogrel was released, nothing was known about its pharmaco, well, very little was known about its pharmacokinetics, but we now know that uh, clopidogrel is actually an inactive prodrug. It needs to be activated um, by uh, CYP2, uh, cytochrome P450 system in the liver to ultimately result in an active metabolite that binds irreversibly to ADP receptors on platelets. And you can see even at the time that this schematic was made, um, uh, we were all hedging on which of these cytochrome P450s was actually the real player. Uh, but we now know, based upon genetics, that uh, CYP2C19 is uh, a major, if not the major, player in terms of uh, activation of clopridogrel. And as I said, uh, we were not the first, and, uh, but, uh, and uh, these are all uh, very nice, uh, large studies that use candidate gene approaches to uh, come across the same variant as a major risk factor. Um, so if you count, uh, at least 15 studies have been published now to date. Uh, the data is extremely consistent. If you look at the STAR2 variant, you can demonstrate differences by active metabolite uh, um, levels. You can show differences by ex vivo platelet aggregation, and you can show differences by cardiovascular outcomes. So a really consistent story that's emerged just over about a, a three-year period of time. Uh, Jessica Mega published a nice uh, meta-analysis not long ago, and uh, you can see that at the level of any cardiovascular event, individuals given clopidogrel have uh, about a one-and-a-half to 1.8-fold increase in risk of a car uh, any cardiovascular event. Um, more importantly, possibly than that, on, a clinical, on clinical grounds, is, is if you look at uh, a rarer event, stent thrombosis, one that is uh, sometimes fatal uh, and catastrophic, uh, that uh, the STAR2 variant is associated with about a 2.6-fold uh, increase in uh, risk of stent thrombosis, and the poor metabolizers uh, in this meta-analysis have about a four-fold increased risk. So in that this is a relatively rare complication, but one that is catastrophic potentially, uh, uh, it kind of fuels the fire to maybe uh, uh, move CYP2C19 testing into the uh, clinical arena. Good question. I'll get to that in a bit. The answer is um, a, a subset of subjects you probably can, can but others probably not. Uh, so then a uh, more recent study just came out a uh, month and a half or so ago is uh, one of uh, now our, one of our collaborators uh, in which uh, uh, a more of a, a multivariate analysis was done on uh, predictors of poor response to clopridogrel. And uh, you can see here where a number of clinical, um, uh, uh, clinical characteristics, prior MI, for example, heart failure, 
uh, are uh, significant predictors of clopidogrel response. And down here you see, again, the CYP2C19 status also being a major contributor. Uh, there are some other genes here that I'll talk about in a little while that have a lesser effect, but in some cases, for example, the transporter for clopidogrel um, may be having uh, somewhat of an effect on uh, clopidogrel response. And I show this because what we're talking about potentially in terms of implementation of a clinical paradigm may look uh, to some extent like what we're uh, thinking about for warfarin pharmacogenomics, where you have an algorithm in which you can input not only genetics but also clinical attributes to come up with a risk score that then you can guide therapy um, either with clopidogrel, standard dose, higher dose, alternative medicine, uh, whatever. Percent of the um, variation in the response is accounted for by all of these variables. You have to the total, yeah. So when we looked at this, and I'll have to look at this paper a little bit more carefully, um, uh, some of the clinical characteristics like age, sex, uh, BMI, lipid levels accounted for about 10%, and then the CYP2C19 was about 12%, so we had about 20, 25% that was accounted for. Um, we didn't look at some of these other parameters, so I'm guessing that these may account for some more. Uh, this is just shown in, in odds ratios, so, um, and I don't even remember if in the paper itself they uh, reported that. I, I'm actually probably guessing probably not, because this, this was not at the level of platelet aggregation. So they had to report uh, odds ratios and not, uh, okay, I worked through that. So we don't know. Uh, and so all of this uh, led, uh, as many of you know, to a change in the FDA label um, uh, back in March of 2010. Uh, you can see the uh, boxed warning uh, states that uh, there's this genotype and that uh, individuals with this genotype uh, would be predicted to be less responsive to clopidogrel. And in particular, poor metabolizers, those who have two, store two, uh, two loss of function variants, uh, that uh, physicians should consider alternative uh, therapy. Uh, as you know, uh, as you see here, the FDA does not mandate genetic testing. It just states uh, the information that tests are available to obtain uh, CYP2C19 genetic information. So in some ways, uh, this sort of sets up what we regard as sort of the perfect storm for implementation of pharmacogenomics. And uh, um, for one thing, uh, clopidogrel is soon to come off patents. It will be uh, quite inexpensive. Um, the son of clopidogrel is called prosigril, and prosigril doesn't require CYP2C19 for activation. Um, on the other side, it's uh, just approved, so it's going to be expensive for the indeterminate future, and also on the other side of the coin, the benefit to risk uh, coin, uh, prosigril is associated with higher bleeding risks. So this is a reason why most cardiologists wouldn't give prosigril to everyone. Um, and there's also a, a third uh, member on the block, ticagrelor. So it introduces the idea that maybe the new clinical paradigm should be CYP2C19 testing in anyone who's going to get clopidogrel. Uh, and the, um, uh, rapid, extensive metabolizers should get the inex more ex inexpensive drug that we would predict, at least genetically, would be uh, uh, um, adequate, and we should reserve the more expensive drugs, the ones that are associated with higher bleeding rates, at least in the case of prosigril, uh, uh, we should reserve that for the third or so of the population that has one and, um, most uh, importantly, two copies of the uh, STAR2 variant. Also, has um, their patients have events on prosigril? Yeah, so that's so a whole new science. One could start studying the uh, responsiveness. Exactly. So <laughs> it's not metabolized by this particular 
particular pathway? Is there an understanding of what might be responsible for the resistance? Uh, it hasn't been studied as far as I know. And uh, it's a kind of an interesting idea because you would expect that maybe whatever we find for prostaglil, that'll be in a common pathway for clopridogrel because it's outside of pharmacokinetics and metabolism. So it's a good thought. Yes? You mentioned that there was a, a subpopulation that would benefit from increased dosage. Is, it, is that part of the proposed? Uh, yeah, l let me show you. I'll show you. Other questions? Okay. All right. So um, sounds like a really no-brainer, doesn't it? Uh, the science is there. Uh, we should be doing, the cardiologists should be doing these genetic tests on everybody um, immediately. And uh, one of the things that I learned is, is that it, it, it's not so easy. And um, uh, in the field more generally, but really uh, what I've uh, learned about this field is that uh, there are huge barriers actually to implementation of um, genomic discoveries, and uh, uh, most cardiologists even now um, are not doing genetic testing. In fact, most cardiologists don't even know that there's a genetic test available to uh, uh, individualized antiplatelet therapy. Um, but those who do know and, and those who you try to educate uh, about this, you can put them in a room and you can tell them all about this data that exists out there. and then. Uh, and these are smart people. Uh, and you can go around the room and ask them whether they're going to start doing CYP2C19 genetic testing in their cardiology uh, cath labs. And each of them will tell you, no, uh, there's no way that I'm going to start doing this. And the main reason that they mention is, is that there has not been a randomized prospective clinical trial to demonstrate that genotyping makes a difference on, in clinical outcomes. Uh, so cardiologists are an extremely um, um, uh, evidence-based group, that's not a bad thing, of course, uh, but what they really want to see before they're going to change practice are, are large, uh, expensive, multi-center uh, clinical trials. They want to... you ever ask those cardiologists whether they um, order coronary uh, CT scans for coronary um, angiography and whether the, there's a randomized prospective trial that shows that that makes a difference? Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm sure there are other <laughs> motivations for ordering that test, but we won't get into that now. But no, you're right. Of course, uh, uh, like all of uh, uh, physicians, they do make some judgments that are not based on uh, randomized clinical trials. But I guess in cases like this where they see this as sort of a black-white kind of answer, they, they want an answer in a prospective randomized trial. Um, and uh, there are all sorts of other um, barriers to implementation, uh, and these are some of, all of these are pretty generic to pharmacogenomics or even discoveries more generally. But really, the main one is the lack of this prospective randomized clinical trial that we seem to be up against. So um, uh, this uh, uh, enlightenment came to me around the time that our PGRN grant was going to be up for renewal. And we figured that if our discovery was going to uh, hit a brick wall in implementation because there were no prospective randomized clinical trials, that we were going to take on a, a prospective randomized clinical trial. And so uh, we proposed uh, that to uh, the PGRN, and fortunately our grant was renewed. And to make a long story short, uh, this is the uh, design of the PAPI-2 trial. Uh, it's a prospective randomized trial of genotype-directed antiplatelet therapy in uh, CYP2C19 uh, subjects. Uh, you can see that uh, we're going to uh, take individuals from the cath lab. They're going to be randomized into a uh, standard of care arm where 
the physicians will do whatever they want, and the vast majority of these individuals <coughs> will get uh, clopidogrel. Uh, and uh, in the uh, genotype-directed arm, we will genotype them within three hours, and um, uh, based upon their genotype, ran, uh, uh, prescribe either clopidogrel to the extensive metabolizers and ultra-metabolizers, and prosegril to the intermediate and poor metabolizers. We are going to look at platelet aggregation, but the primary outcome will be cardiovascular events uh, uh, as, out as far as one year after their um, therapy. And um, the primary analysis that we're going to do, actually, is to compare this group, the intermediate and poor metabolizers, to the intermediate and poor metabolizers in this group that we will obtain through retrospective genotyping um, after the follow-up is complete. And I can go into details as to why we finally um, arrived at this study design, but it took more than a year to figure this out and to come up with a study design that would answer the primary question that we believe cardiologists need answered and at the same time satisfy the FDA um, in that we were conducting an ethical trial, because as far as the FDA is concerned, it's unethical to um, not act on a genotype if it's known, even in a clinical trial. How many sites? So let's see, do I have that here? No. Uh, okay. So it's a five-site study. Uh, let's see, here, right here. Uh, so this is the uh, structure. Uh, the clinical sites are five sites, um, University of Maryland, Hopkins, Sinai of Baltimore, uh, Geisinger Health System, and Christiana Care. Um, do you mind if I just ask a couple please. questions? Did you, um, maybe you'll tell us this, uh, run into any resistance among the cardiologists even to have their patients in a clinical trial <coughs> like this? Uh, no, we, so, yeah. I mean, this, this whole... Um, just think about it as a cultural resistance to genetics among cardiologists was eliminated by the clinical trial opportunity. Yes. Uh, we, I mean, and, and maybe this is just specific to the sites that we chose, and that's why we chose them that we did. But um, uh, no, that was not a, a major issue. Richard. Right. So re regard that uh, ethical dilemma about if, if uh, a genetic test is available in the physician own, if uh, if they chose to get the test, that would be fine in, in your design. Uh, well, actually, that's um, this was asked that we're down to the nitty gritty of those kinds of details. Uh, if the genotype becomes known, they're excluded. They're not eligible if they're known at the time of uh, of randomization, uh, and if they do obtain the genetic test. Um, we're going to keep them in the study, but uh, we will, uh, you know, do a secondary analysis where we'll pull them out. At least that was the best we can come up with. When we, yes. Is it more or less expensive to measure gene, the, the gene versus just measuring platelet function? function? Yeah. So great question. I think I might have a couple of sentences about that in a later slide. But um, so that's a huge controversy, and uh, the, the bottom line is, uh, and that's been going on for years and years. And you get cardiologists in the room talking about platelet function tests; it, um, it, it gets ugly. So um, <laughs> we 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 try to avoid that question altogether. In fact, in some of the study designs, we were talking about additional arms where we would be comparing platelet function tests to um, 
uh, genotype. We're using a sequential approach of first genotype and then, and then uh, fine-tune with platelet aggregation. I think all those are very relevant questions to ask, but it, it, we weren't willing to get into that hot water. We wanted to uh, conduct a trial that was a very uh, straightforward, one that would either prove or disprove that genotyping made a difference. So, so even though you didn't use it as a randomization variable, you, you are going to look at it as a... a, a the platelet aggregation, yeah. yes. We want to use... I mean, this, these are big sample sizes. We have no idea how we're going to pay for all this, but um, <laughs> uh, we, 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 we hope that to use the sample size for new discovery because there are more genes to discover, and we think, again, going back to platelet aggregation might be a good way to, to do that. Will, will BMS at least give you free drugs? Or? No. No. They have no interest in supporting uh, these trials. Clopidogrel is coming off patents, so there's little or no interest. And is, is this all, um, you may be able to mention this as well, CLIA lab that's doing yes. this central lab? Yes. So, uh, so we uh, are using this Verigene system, which is a three-hour turnaround test. Um, and uh, we've landed it in our new CLIA-approved translational genomics lab. Uh, these are the early validation data. Uh, it shows that the test is actually pretty, pretty accurate in uh, identifying star 2s, star 3s, and star 17. So we're pretty much ready to go. But all five sites are using your lab? No. We're going to land one of these in uh, CLI approved labs in each of those sites. They're basically the molecular pathology labs at the hospitals. And there'll be, there's a whole protocol for validation uh, uh, across the sites on an ongoing basis, uh, What's et cetera. What's the cost per genotype? About $45. Yes? Oh, yeah, it's a bad. Okay, so um, some of us don't want to wait five years for a randomized clinical trial to be done to begin figuring out how do we go through the science of um, translation uh, and implementation of pharmacogenetic testing because even if we do do the prospective randomized clinical trial, um, we're going to um, trip over the logistics of actually then, okay, now with the evidence base, how are we going to do this? How are we going to start? So to jumpstart that, we, um, uh, along with uh, the Pharmacogenomics Research Network uh, Consortium, have been thinking a lot about the science of translation. And um, uh, Mary Relling uh, at St. Jude's, along with a number of others from the PGRN, uh, have uh, initiated uh, a, a consortium called the Pharmacogenomics Research Network Clinical Pharmacogenetics Implementation Consortium, CPIC. And uh, the idea behind CPIC is basically to develop guidelines that we publish on drug gene pairs for which there really is a burden of evidence. Uh, is ready for implementation in clinical sites to improve clinical care. And so uh, one of the CPIC guidelines that we published uh, just this year are guidelines on clopridogrel and uh, CYP2C19 testing. And um, the idea behind these CPIC publications is, is that they all follow a standard format, no matter what the drug gene pair is. And we've tried to uh, standardize these tables in a way that we hope clinicians can learn and understand uh, from uh, the genetics and genotypes through to predicted phenotypes through to suggested clinical algorithms for action. So every CPIC guideline has a table that looks like this that initially just defines and describes the genetic variants that are out there. Every CPIC guideline has a table that looks like this showing the allele frequencies of 
the various variants uh, when available by ethnicity. Um, and everyone has a table that looks like this where you take the uh, genotypes or diplotypes and based on them define the likely phenotype in this case of CYP2C19 ultra metabolizers in the case of an activating variant that I'm not convinced is all that important uh, extensive metabolizers, intermediate metabolizers and uh, poor metabolizers and then, uh, as I mentioned, the suggested clinical algorithm, very similar to what we're suggesting for PAPI-2, uh, extensive and ultra-metabolizers uh, getting standard dose clopridogrel and intermediate metabolizers and poor. We hedge a little bit here, prosigrel or alternative therapy. Um, this might include a higher dose of clopridogrel in some, and uh, I can show you a little bit of data on the rationale for that. Was there a hand that went up? Okay. What, so, you know, I'll ask um, just what, if any, has been the reaction of the FDA to the CPIC guidelines, or have they not had any comments? I'll tell you, we have several members of the FDA who are in CPIC, who are part of CPIC. ISAM is on the call a fair bit. Mm -hmm. So they provide input. We, we've tried to get their buy-in uh, on this. Of course, uh, ISAM is not representing the FDA per se. He's uh, an interested party who's... but. Um, uh, so I don't think there's been any official stance that I can think of. Um, I think that's great that you have them at least on uh, the table. That's terrific. Yeah. Other questions? Okay. All right. So here are the other CPIC guidelines. Um, uh, you, uh, you may be interested in some of these other drug gene pairs, uh, some already published and others uh, in preparation. So uh, it's one thing to begin to, to write CPIC guidelines, but if we really believe in these guidelines, uh, especially uh, those at the leading edge, part of the Pharmacogenomics Research Network, we should be walking the walk at our respective institutions. And so uh, just recently we've taken the CPIC guidelines and took them one step further in yet a new project uh, called the Translational Pharmacogenomics Project, TPP. And the idea here is to uh, take CPIC guidelines and to bring them to life, uh, take them and, and translate them in diverse uh, real-world clinical settings. Um, and so at a number of pharmacogenomics research network sites, we're beginning to implement these guidelines, whether it be CYP2C19 testing or TPMT uh, in, uh, at St. Jude's for uh, childhood cancer treatment. And in doing this, you know, we're going to begin to understand what are the barriers in implementation, how do we overcome those barriers, and in that we're going to be doing this at a number of diverse healthcare systems across the uh, U.S., we hope to develop a, a toolbox of practical uh, um, solutions to implementation, and we hope to disseminate that information as best practice approaches uh, as uh, other places uh, begin to uh, go through this implementation process. Of course, not just for clopridogrel, but we hope in the future for many other uh, drug gene pairs. So is this research or clinical care? This is research. Uh, so the groups that are involved now are shown here, and all of them are doing this under an IRB-approved consent, at least at the beginning. Um, and uh, we're going to try to coordinate this uh, through uh, Stanford group and Mary Relling's group. Uh, we'll base it on the CPIC guidelines. We'll be developing some common educational materials. We're going to begin to analyze some of the outcomes of implementation uh, and some of the metrics of implementation. Uh, and 
we're going to try to together uh, uh, devise some decision support uh, tools for the commonly used EMRs. Rhonda. about whether they want to recognize the CPIC recommendations as, you know, as part of their guidelines process. Yeah, as you know, uh, great question. As you know, Jeff, this is a huge issue in terms of uh, local committees coming together or consortia coming together or professional societies coming up with quote-unquote guidelines. And in many cases, they're, well, in all cases, they're never the same. And uh, uh, in some cases, they're conflicting. And uh, I think this is a big issue in the field, uh, that somehow we need to coordinate this effort. Um, the ACC uh, AHA did come up with guidelines about a year and a half ago. Um, and they're very conservative. They recommend actually against uh, um, routine testing. Dan Roden and I wrote a commentary uh, to that uh, guideline. And the CPIC guidelines are more aggressive, progressive, however you want to say, uh, with uh, AHA guidelines. And of course, a guideline written a year and a half ago uh, is different than a guideline you know, published today. So I think this is a big issue that the field needs to grapple with. Um, CPIC is as inclusive as we can get it. I mean, what we wanted is you know, real uh, experts in the area uh, to vet uh, whether a test is ready or not. And if it's so, what are the best guesses for recommended actions, uh, save a prospective randomized trial? That's kind of the approach that we've, we've taken. Curious, what, what is the rationale for not having information to help them make the clinical? You said that they were actually actively against Yeah. Testing. Well, this is good. And, and I'm happy not to get through all my slides because I'd much rather have this discussion, these discussions. Um, so um, our initial uh, the study design was to genotype right up here and select Enrich, enrich the group for intermediate and poor metabolizers because the, the intermediate metabol the, the uh, sorry, the extensive metabolizers, two thirds of the study, um, are not really contributing much to the analysis. So it's a very inefficient study design. So we were going to genotype up here and enrich the intermediate and poor metabolizers to at least 50 50. And so we were then struck, and that's what we submitted to the FDA initially. Uh, so here we have then people whose genotypes we know that uh, some of them are poor metabolizers that are being randomized into the standard of care arm and they considered that unethical. Wouldn't let us do the study. So we either then had to exclude uh, the uh, poor metabolizers from both sides and we don't think that really answers the question cardiologists want to know the answer to. And so uh, we, we then arrived at this where um, we are backing, we, we, we officially don't know these people's genotype and is that uh, why the large number is to help hopefully come back with some, some real um, power at the, at the bottom? Absolutely. And the power is still somewhat marginal because, as you know, event rates are really coming down for stent placements. So um, it's, it's um, and uh, I should have mentioned that, you know, our primary goal is to get these five sites up and running, but we hope to be able to expand PAPI2 to additional sites once we get up and running. And we're looking for additional funding to do that. Other questions? Okay. Reema, I'm going to end at 10. I know you, you're, you're itching. Yeah, no, don't worry, don't worry. And, and, and like I said, I'm very comfortable not getting through all these slides because I think this is much more, uh, much better to have discussions. Okay, so um, uh, what about some of the unresolved questions? I presented this pretty black and white, but of course there are unresolved questions, and let me see if I can get you through some of this. Uh, to show you where some of the new science is. Uh, for one thing, one of the interesting things that relatively few people talk about when you talk about drug gene pairs 
is, is that the indication for that drug may also matter with regard to whether the genotype matters. And I think we're seeing that with CYP2C19 genotyping. It's probably, uh, it's, it, the data I showed you were in PCI patients who got stents, but uh, the genotype is probably less relevant in other populations. For example, those who are uh, uh, getting antiplatelet therapy for stroke or for peripheral artery disease or for AFib and prevention of stroke, those kinds of things. So this is where you see some of the uh, um, uh, controversy in the literature. Not, not all studies are positive, but when you look at the studies that are not positive, it's usually for a different indication uh, or for patients even who are um, uh, uh, getting it for coronary artery disease but are at lower risk. Um, and I have, you know, I think we all have some ideas about why that is. Um, other genetic variants, well, of course, there very well may be. Uh, there is this gain of function variant, um, and uh, there's some studies that show that that gain of function variant may define uh, super responders, for lack of a better term, to clopidogrel, and these people may also be at increased risk for bleeding. Um, the literature is somewhat mixed on this, and uh, in addition, uh, very few studies take into account the fact that this star 17 variant is in very tight linkage disequilibrium with the STAR2 variant. So often when they show an effect of the STAR17 variant, what they're really seeing is an effect of lack of the STAR2 variant in that group. Um, we've went, written multiple commentaries and editorials of papers that publish on uh, an independent effect of the STAR17 variant. That being said, there may be some effect, but I think it's very modest relative to the STAR2 variant. Um, and, uh, of course, uh, as I've mentioned, there are potentially some other genes like uh, ABCB1, PON1, and others. Um, I think the data is mounting that ABCB1 variants uh, play uh, a role and, uh, again, not quite as large as CYP2C19. Um, let me tell you a little bit about some of our work on PON1 since that uh, has been a hot topic. And it's a hot topic because of this publication that came out not long ago in Nature Medicine, a really nice study by uh, Bowman et al. And in this paper, uh, they claim that PON1, not CYP2C19, is the major enzyme responsible for activation of clopridogrel, and that uh, people with this uh, well-described missense variant, um, first of all, it accounts for 70% of the variation in clopridogrel response, they say, it strongly associates with stent thrombosis. And in the same paper, same patient population, they claim that the STAR2 variant has no effect. On, uh, on those uh, parameters. Um, so this was a high-profile uh, uh, um, article. Uh, you read through the article, it's a beautiful article that goes from pharmacokinetics to dynamics to outcomes, um, very nice work. Uh, but I'll tell you now, our group uh, recently published and uh, now several since have been unable to replicate this, uh, this data. So uh, here's some of our own data where we looked at uh, clopridogrel active metabolite by PON1 genotype. You can see absolutely no effect. I didn't show you the CYP2C19 breakdown, but there is a very large effect of, uh, uh, on, uh, uh, of STAR2 variant on uh, clopridogrel um, active metabolite. Platelet aggregation, either pre or post clopridogrel, you can see the PON1 genotype has um, no effect. Is that in the Amish or is that in This is in the PAPI1 study. So this is in the healthy Amish. Uh, and then we also went to Paul Goebbels' population, and uh, here's what we see here, you know, absolutely no effect um, on uh, cardiovascular outcomes. And was that other study? Was it, could it have so this is a 600 or so. No, the first oh. one, the PON study. Oh, uh, it was a pretty large study. Oh, so and it could have been just a well, issue. Um, 
It's possible because uh, they make, at least at the level of um, uh, um, cardiovascular events, stent thromboses, we could have easily missed a stent, uh, an association of stent thrombosis here. We didn't have enough power in this to look at stent thrombosis. But a number of studies now have uh, published in, uh, by other groups, and, and there are now at least five other studies that have been published that show absolutely no association upon one with any uh, uh, clopidogrel response. And to me, this is still a big enigma in the field because uh, the initial report to me looked like a really nice one, um, uh, but has been, uh, there's no group that I know of that has been able to replicate that data. So stay tuned, but we think PON1 is probably not a contributor to, um, uh, this is the question that uh, I think you had about platelet aggregation testing. And uh, uh, the bottom line is, is that uh, there's a lot of literature on platelet aggregation testing. And I think that uh, it's my opinion that platelet function testing is probably going to be complementary to genotyping. They're both providing um, overlapping but different sets of information. And uh, while genotype is going to provide sort of a lifelong underlying risk of um, recurrence uh, events on clopridogrel, um, platelet function testing is a more dynamic thing and also in addition to um, uh, Inf being influenced by genetics, it's influenced by non-genetics and, and non-known genetics, um, but biologically is more variable. So I think that the two together probably will do better than either alone uh, in predicting who should get alternative uh, therapy. Uh, that study hasn't been done and may never be done. Um, efficacy of higher dose clopridogrel, uh, this was another question that came up. and. Um, the answer is, is that higher dose clopridogrel will overcome the genetic uh, clopridogrel resistance in some, but not all, intermediate and poor metabolizers. And I'll show you a quick slide, uh, uh, actually, that was performed by uh, Richard Hornstein in uh, collaboration with uh, colleagues at the FDA, where, uh, again, in a very controlled way, we brought back six subjects from each of the genotypes, again, Amish healthy individuals, and um, we uh, gave them a clopridogrel dose escalation study. Uh, one week of therapy with a washout of uh, 75, then 150, then 300 milligrams of uh, clopridogrel. And then pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic uh, testing was done. And you can see here uh, for the platelet aggregation, extensive metabolizers uh, responded even better to higher doses of clopridogrel, as did the intermediate and poor metabolizers. But you can see an obvious step up here. Uh, and if you kind of extrapolate over uh, and you want to know about what dose do you need in an intermediate and poor metabolizer to get the pharmacodynamic effect you would in an extensive metabolizer on a standard dose, it's probably around 150 milligrams in intermediate metabolizers and 300 milligrams in poor metabolizers. That's a huge dose, daily dose of clopridogrel. I just don't know at what point you're going to say, okay, well, let's just give them prosecril. Um, uh, but uh, that, that's the answer. And you can see that the metabolite levels sort of follow the same, the same pattern. What does the label allow for maximum dosing of I, I don't think they even specify anything more than standard dose. Okay. Do you know if that's right, Richard? We do know that cardiologists give a 300 or 600 milligram load. A load, yeah. yeah. But for, yeah. Well, in the, in the 
I don't think in the label, but there have been studies subsequently, for example, the Gravitas uh, study that was a platelet function test study, uh, they, the alternative med they gave was 150 milligrams, and actually that was a negative study. They didn't come up with any differences. So there have been some relatively large studies with higher dose, but I don't think the label has caught up to those studies. Okay. Um, I'm going to... Um, I have two stories, but I have time for only one, so let's see. You want exomes or aspirin? <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. No, I can't. Remy wants us out of here. Okay. Um, l let me go to exomes, and then I'll skip the aspirin part because we can. Uh, so uh, we're very interested in uh, trying to discover uh, additional variants uh, that uh, uh, and um, maybe even rare variants because, uh, of course, the rare variants aren't going to predict clopidogrel response on a population-wide basis um, or be as important on a population-wide basis, but they're going to unveil new biology and pharmacology and also uh, maybe predictive, but in a, more predictive, uh, but in a smaller set of people. And so, as I said, we're very interested in gene-environment interactions, and as part of our Amish studies, we've done things like fat challenges and high and low-salt diets treated patients uh, Amish with aspirin and with clopridogrel, and we've begun to take people at the extremes of these response traits and have uh, performed exome sequencing. And in the case of clopridogrel, uh, ADP-stimulated uh, platelet aggregation, um, post-clopridogrel, uh, extreme non-responders and extreme responders was the design of our um, exome sequencing. So again, here's the distribution of clopridogrel response. Uh, nice uh, normal distribution, and we're interested in these extremes of response potentially. And one of the cool things about the Amish is that we could ask a cool question, and that is, um, is there excessive relatedness of individuals at the extremes? Because if there is, it would suggest that uh, these families are segregating a rare, high penetrance allele. And in the case of clopridogrel, in fact, there is some excess sharing of extremes, and we have sib pairs, and parents, and trios, and extended pedigrees, et cetera. And as an initial experiment, we chose to sequence uh, initially 13 uh, individuals here. Um, these come from families uh, in which we have at least two um, extreme non-responders, and then we also have a relative who is discordant. The idea of sequencing that trio's exome would allow us to compare what's similar in those who share the extreme trait um, and what the um, normal responder in that same family doesn't share. At least that's the idea in terms of how we're going to call this. So this is all work in progress. These analyses take forever. But um, you can see uh, we uh, used Agile and SureSelect. Uh, we uh, uh, contracted out to SeekRight. Actually, this is a collaboration we're doing with the FDA who paid for the sequencing um, on an ABI uh, solid. You can see. Uh, What's that? A billion, three billion reads, um, 660 uh, gigabases uh, came out of the sequencer. Most of them were aligned, and uh, huge amounts of sequence data now to uh, look at. On average, per individual, about 76 million reads, about 3.7 gigs of gigabases of sequence, uh, coverage of about 50x, um, and. Uh, Overall, we have uh, about a quarter of a million candidate variants that we found in these 120 uh, Amish exomes. So that's data across the 120 
um, exomes that we sequence. So let me bring you back, and we're culling through the data now. So let me bring you back to our initial GWAS in the PAPI study. Um, you can see that even after we adjusted for CYP2C19 star 2, there is still a residual signal here on chromosome 10Q. P values about 10 to the minus uh, 4. Uh, the signal is not star 17. So we've always been thinking that maybe something else is going on in this cluster. And so we began to look uh, at what the exome data was telling us. And it turns out that this family, actually uh, these two families, um, how you define a family in Amish land is, is, is a spiritual um, thing. Uh, it, um, these are all related. But uh, these two families actually have a novel CYP2C18 variant. Um, anything goes, but the Amish know <laughs> the Amish know a lot about genetics, more than the general population, because they live genetics, and uh, therefore they try not to marry any closer than first cousins once removed or second cousins. Um, so um, through the beginnings of calling through the exome data, we found a rare uh, missense mutation in CYP2C18. Uh, it wasn't in HapMap, but it just appeared very recently as part of the 1,000 Genomes Project, so it has an RS number. So it's rare, it's in the Amish, it's in the general population, at least in the 1,000 genomes that were sequenced from the general population. And here, of course, the sample sizes are pretty small, but not all that small. And um, you can see that uh, this is a missense variant that uh, potentially is rare, but has a, may have a very large effect on uh, clopridogrel response. So we're interested in pursuing this further, genotyping more, and of course, uh, looking uh, more closely at our um, exomes. So what I'm going to do is conclude, um, but um, the story of uh, platelet endothelial adhesion receptor, pair one, and aspirin is an interesting one. There's some published literature, and uh, we have some data also that I'd be happy to review and talk about uh, maybe at a future time. Um, but uh, that may be, uh, maybe, there may be a common variant that we, as well as the Hopkins group, uh, have identified as maybe an important contributor to aspirin response. So with that, um, I'm going to conclude. Uh, these are the people who've done a huge amount of hard work. It's been uh, really fun to work as part of a multidisciplinary team at the University of Maryland, but now even more fun to begin to bring in collaborators from all over, including sites uh, of the PGRN and the FDA and uh, the NIH and NCI who uh, measured the uh, active metabolite levels uh, for us. Thanks.